everybody, Andrarchy here, and I was wondering if you guys could help me out with something. What is this? Is it a robot vacuum or a maid replacement? Is it making my life easier or destroying jobs and tax revenues and so should be taxed accordingly? Well, answering that question is what today's show is all about. This will be the second episode in my Techonomics series where I merge my understanding of technology and economics to come up with original insights that add value to your life as well as mine. So if a robot takes your job, it should be taxed, right? I mean, you are paying taxes, so it should too. Simple. At least that's typically how it's presented to the public, like in a recent Quartz video that discussed Bill Gates's proposal, which he made at the World Economic Forum in Davos, a yearly meeting where the 0.0001% meet to discuss their plans for our world. I'm not being conspiratorial here, that's what it is, and this is perfect evidence of that. One of the richest men in the world advocating for how new and additional taxes should be levied on the population to a group of very wealthy, very powerful, mostly men. That's not even a value judgment, just a statement of fact. In January, the New York Times, not exactly Infowars, published an article titled, How Davos Brings the Global Elite Together. But Bill Gates is still a smart guy, right? Of course. But does that mean he's an expert in everything? Absolutely not. It's funny, I remember a time when Bill Gates was primarily loathed and viewed as someone who built his empire effectively on stolen property, first with DOS, which he didn't invent, and then with the graphical user interface, which he didn't invent, and then grew the empire with aggressive monopolistic practices of which Microsoft was found guilty. He was regarded at best as a relentless competitor, not as a brilliant visionary. According to Wikipedia, Judge Thomas Jackson issued his findings of fact on November 5th, 1999, which stated that Microsoft's dominance of the x86-based personal computer operating systems market constituted a monopoly and that Microsoft had taken actions to crush threats to that monopoly, including Apple, Java, Netscape, Lotus Software, Real Networks, Linux, and others. Judge Jackson stated that Microsoft executives had proved time and time again to be inaccurate, misleading, evasive, and transparently false. Microsoft is a company, he said, with an institutional disdain for both the truth and for rules of law that lesser entities must respect. It is also a company whose senior management is not averse to offering specious testimony to support spurious defenses to claims of its wrongdoing. Microsoft's legal team managed to overturn the order to break the company up on appeal, but the appeals court did not overturn any of the findings of fact. Microsoft then settled with the Department of Justice, who announced they would not seek to break the company up for its antitrust violations, proving once again that the American legal system always delivers fair and uncompromised justice. Bill Gates then went on to spend the billions of dollars he accumulated as a direct result of these antitrust violations to start the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and rebrand himself as humanity's noble savior. But he's still a smart guy, right? Why? Because you want to agree with him? This is a guy who once said that Windows would never be a 64-bit operating system. And that's his product. He also said in 2004, and I quote, spam will be a thing of the past in two years' time. Still waiting on that one. And guess where he said that? At the World Economic Forum in Davos. In fact, Bill Gates' willingness to use his platform to make such a bold claim about an area in which he is objectively not an expert, political science and economy, is a fantastic example of what psychologists call the overconfidence effect. 
One of the things that psychologists proved is that even experts in their own field were terrible at making predictions, but they had supreme confidence that they were right. Economists were no better in this study than zookeepers at predicting the price of oil in five years, but unlike the zookeepers whose confidence in their predictions mapped closer to reality, the economists dramatically overestimated the odds that their predictions would be proven right. Now that only explains why Gates has been so bad at predicting the future when it comes to his own area of expertise. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, another psychological phenomenon which explains why he would think he'd be any better at predicting how other people can solve massively complex and unpredictable phenomena like how continued automation will disrupt the global economy. Researchers found that the less you know about a subject, the more likely you are to dramatically overestimate your ability. The problem they found is that you don't possess the expertise necessary to evaluate your own competence accurately. Okay, sure, Gates is a convicted monopolist with a proven track record of not always being right, but he's still super smart, right? So he must be less likely to fall into these traps. Unfortunately, researchers have tackled this question as well and found that no, being smart provides you with zero protection against bias. They found that it doesn't matter how smart you are, you tend to just make whatever argument your side makes. It's called my side bias. So if you're super intelligent, we're already leaning towards wanting to tax automation, and you agree with Gates's argument, well, that's exactly what studies indicate you would do, regardless of whether you or he are right or wrong. Now, it might seem like the crux of my argument is an ad hominem attack. Why my fixation on Gates? Well, that's because the primary argument for these taxes is an argument from authority. Very few technical details or reasoned arguments are ever given. Check for yourself. It's just Bill Gates said so. This is subtly manipulative, and so I think it's important to call out. But you're right. Let's get to the reality of such taxes. The primary source for my argument will be an article written by Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister and academic economist who actually has a very good track record of making predictions. He predicted the design of the European Union made it destined to collapse, something it's in the process of doing, and he predicted that the proposed remedies by the European Union's financial institutions would only make matters worse for Greece, which now finds itself in a Great Depression with 25% unemployment and nearly 50% youth unemployment. He's also a socialist. Varoufakis is an expert, and what follows are a summary of his views on why the current arguments being floated for an automation tax are fatally flawed, which is not, by the way, the same as saying that this is an unsolvable problem. There are multiple types of schemes being proposed, all of which seem well-meaning, though at the same time, we shouldn't dismiss the reality that all are designed to increase government revenue, and so the government shouldn't be seen as some noble and impartial participant. For example, when Quartz says that Gates is not the first to suggest the tax on robot workers, they don't then point to some technologist or futurist or economist, but to an EU proposal to tax the owners of robots. So a tax proposal is presented as support for a tax proposal. A proposal that was rejected by the EU. So what does that even really tell us regarding the government's evaluation of whether this is a good idea or not? Are we supposed to interpret proposals as proof of viability and rejections as proof of government corruption or incompetence? 
And if government is corrupt or incompetent, how can it possibly be expected to handle such a complex task? This complexity is only one of the criticisms levied at the arguments, and which Gates likely fails to appreciate because he's not an expert in government bureaucracy, unlike Varoufakis. Varoufakis highlights this by proposing what at first might seem like a very simple hypothetical, which I refer to as the simulated salary scheme. Imagine a person named Ken who makes 50 grand operating a harvester. Ken gets replaced by a robot named Nexus who gets paid nothing. Simple, right? All we have to do is pretend that Nexus makes 50 grand and taxes owner accordingly. We create a simulated salary and levy a tax based on that. Simple. Not so fast. The first problem is how we will determine Nexus's simulated salary in two years. What about five years? Ten. Wouldn't Ken have negotiated a raise by now? What if demand for the crop has gone down and the business has decreased output by 50%? With human workers, that could have meant layoffs of 50% of the company's workforce. Instead, they just turn off the Nexus unit that replaced Ken. Should it still be taxed as if it was a human making 50 grand? Of course, transitions don't typically occur so cleanly. In fact, they never do, especially when there's an incentive to not doing it. For example, what if, at first, Ken oversees Nexus and retains his own salary and then only years later is he replaced? Both he and Nexus couldn't possibly have the same job at that point, therefore Nexus couldn't have taken his job. Or what if, as is more likely to be the case, Nexus is simply built directly into the harvester as Christopher Nolan depicted in his film Interstellar? After all, it's not like Tesla is building the Johnny Cab from Total Recall. They're designing autopilot directly into the car, probably because designing a human-like machine for the sole purpose of driving a car would be an enormous waste of materials. How many cab drivers will be put out of work because of this, and how easy will that be to calculate? Not to mention, this whole argument totally ignores the question of what to do about machines that never even had a human operator, like my robot vacuum. And how we prevent businesses from making their robots just different enough than the workers they're replacing to be exempted from any tax. Who will decide when this is being done and what kind of objective standard could possibly be applied? As Varoufakis points out, we can see how even this overly simplistic and unrealistic situation sets up an inevitable clash between business owners and the tax office over impossible to calculate estimates of what would have happened to Ken's salary in a fictional universe where he had not been replaced by a robot. We are trying to imagine a world in which Ken doesn't get replaced by robots, in a world where Ken and all the Kens and all of us are getting replaced by robots. If this doesn't seem difficult to you, try calculating how much a calligrapher would make today if not for the printing press which automated their job. Easy, right? Just imagine a world with no printing press and no typewriter and no computer. Piece of cake. How many millions of dollars will businesses expend trying to prove that Ken's salary would have gone down? An argument, by the way, which would be impossible to disprove. How much of the government's resources, accountants, attorneys, tax revenues will be expended trying to prove the opposite, that Ken's salary would have gone up. An argument equally is impossible to disprove because Ken doesn't exist. How many politicians would seize the opportunity to improve their fundraising by campaigning on the principle that wages would have gone down? How many others would do just the opposite, 
What new and exciting opportunities for divisiveness, corruption, and tax scheming would be opened up by this supposedly simple solution? And how big, expensive, and powerful will the bureaucracy need to become without any proof that approaching the problem in this way can even deliver a viable solution? An ineffective, expensive solution that deprives people of freedom and wealth is no solution at all. The last critical point that Varoufakis makes is that these arguments imagine a distinction between the machine and the machine that operates the machine that is entirely arbitrary and subjective. After all, how many jobs did the harvester itself replace? Why are we taxing Nexus and not the harvester? In 1870, there were 20 million farmers, roughly half of the population. In 2012, there were 3.2 million a 625% decrease without even adjusting for population growth, which would make that number even larger. Had we never created the machines which automated that labor, there would now be over 150 million farmers. But we're supposed to treat the machines which displaced the remaining 2.1% differently than we treated the machines that displaced 56 times as many people? Why? Is it because we're assuming it acts more human? Are we assuming that Nexus is somehow more autonomous than the harvester itself? Otherwise, any distinction between it and the harvester would be entirely arbitrary. Varoufakis argues that the only way that Nexus could be objectively viewed as more autonomous than the harvester is if it were to possess consciousness. But if we're assuming that, then what we're talking about is really a consciousness tax. Nexus is more human than the harvester, therefore it must be taxed. This introduces two totally new problems. One, is it morally right to birth a conscious entity only to enslave it as a laborer and tax it? And two, what organizations are we going to form to make sure that this new consciousness is guaranteed freedom and equal rights, including a living wage, minimum benefits, and enfranchisement? An organization, by the way, that Varoufakis and I would both gladly join. And all of this ignores the issue of how to deal with non-robot innovations like the three-point hitch, arguably the technology which had the most impact on farming efficiency, as well as wholly non-mechanical technological innovations that displace jobs like herbicide-resistant crops. One of the problems I see, which no one ever seems to acknowledge when we talk about these kinds of schemes, is that aren't we always imagining some utopian future where the people in charge are wise, noble, and supremely rational technocrats and not like just to pick one random, off-the-wall, highly unlikely example, I don't know, Donald Trump? I don't want to harp on this issue too much, but I think it's time people start using their imaginations to develop policies that work as well when someone you don't like is in power as when someone you do like is in power. Because if history is any guide, Odds are there are going to be times when people you don't like are in power. It might be time to start thinking about how to set government up to prevent them from being able to do you harm instead of waiting till it's too late. Had this been done in the past, maybe we would find ourselves in a slightly different situation. But no, as long as your guy's in power, executive orders, deportations, drone strikes, totally cool. When the guy you don't like gets that power, just act like you never imagined the possibility and blame everyone but yourself. The real problem, according to Varoufakis, is that we operate under an ideology that can be thought of as industrial capitalism. It has three main categories which we pretend to be able to differentiate from one another. Wealth, rent, and profit. Unfortunately, we have repeatedly demonstrated an inability to consistently, reliably, and objectively differentiate between them 
proving that these ideas are ideological in nature and rationale. Our financial sector, for example, costs us trillions of dollars a year, and yet we count that as part of gross domestic profits. Economist Steve Keen, who predicted the 2008 financial crisis, argues that this is exactly wrong. The problem, as is so often the case with economics and many other disciplines, is that we're talking about a religious dogma while pretending we're talking about objective facts. Technological innovation is basically all humans do. We communicate with one another to develop novel solutions to problems that have yet to be solved, and we do this countless times, every day, all over the world, in countless ways. The solutions proposed assume the same kind of moronic litmus test as we have for profanity. We'll know it when we see it. No, you won't. You won't even see it coming. That's exactly how innovation always happens. Look at the automobile. Look at the internet. Look at the iPhone. Look at Bitcoin. We are engaging in a fantasy that unforeseeable problems can be solved by committing to abstract, subjective, and made-up categories based on, frankly, sophomoric assumptions. The impact technological innovation has on human beings is a serious issue that needs to be addressed, but it's going to take some original thought and open-mindedness. It's going to take innovative thought, something Varoufakis, Keen, and many in the cryptocurrency world have no shortage of. What we do have a shortage of is people who are willing to listen to new ideas, preferring instead to live in fantasy worlds where bureaucrats and industrialists who occupy antiquated and decaying institutions are intelligent and pure and competent, and the distinction between a harvesting machine and a harvesting machine operator machine is clear as day. I do plan on exploring some of the ideas that might actually work, but that'll have to wait for future videos. The goal of this video was to provide you with a more nuanced analysis of the issue of an automation tax. If you feel I did that, please like, subscribe, follow the link in the description to view the companion piece on steamit.com. Give me an upvote there. It's totally free, but that's actually how I get paid. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram, also at Andrarchy. Sincerely, thanks for watching.